Would you please remain standing for the scripture? I'll begin in verse 1 of chapter 21. Hear now the word of the Lord. After Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, it happened this way. Simon, Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. Peter set out to go fishing, and they joined him. But all night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them and said, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they replied. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say it, he wrapped his outer garment around him and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire burning of coals, and there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153 in number, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. As you know, I'm the middle of three boys, and as we were growing up and in college, we would at times return home for the summer and so my mom creatively devised certain rules and responsibilities that we had to have to help us continue to grow up and form as adults, which we tended to think was just a way for her to lighten the load with a new full household. So one of the chores that she had us do, the responsibilities we had for the summer, was to cook a meal at least once a week. We had to cook dinner for the household. And it couldn't be something like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. It had to be an actual cooked meal And so the meals, as you would expect with three boys, began fairly basic with things like tuna fish, you know, basic things that come out of a can. And then as we went on, we developed our skills and got better and a little more bold. So about midway through the summer, I decided if I was going to spend the time to go shopping and prepare a meal, I would rather spend the time doing something, preparing something that I really enjoyed. So I sat down with my mom's cookbooks and searched through and found Uh, a recipe on cooking salmon and it called for a pan that you made uh, out of tin foil that you placed on the grill and we have an indoor grill and so you could cook it inside and these different dishes and I had to prepare a marinade and this salmon cooks in this homemade pan out of tin foil in this lemon and basil like seasoning and it's marinated and it's supposed to be really nice so I do some studying I prepare for this And the day comes around where I'm uh, to cook this meal, and my mom is out for the evening. It's just my dad and my uncle who's visiting at the time uh, for dinner, so I'm just cooking for us. And so I get going on my meal, my mom helps me prep it, and then she takes off to go to her meeting, and I'm left home uh, with with this food, and, you know, things look manageable. Well, as the evening goes on, the salmon's not cooking correctly, and I'm having trouble. It's 
something's wrong with how we set this up. So as I get less and less patient in the situation, I crank the temperature on the grill up more and more and continue to notice that the salmon's not cooking. And as I'm distracted by the salmon, I forget about the bread and the bread burns. So I take the bread out and I'm frustrated. And we're still sitting here wondering what's going on with the salmon. Well, my dad comes over to check on it and I've devised, as, as the recipe calls for, this pan out of tin foil to hold this lemon sauce that's so good for the salmon and it's keeping some of the heat out. So my dad picks up the edge of this pan to see what the deal is and fire uh, immediately comes out of the, the bottom of the pan. So now remember, this is an indoor grill. So this is like on the island in our kitchen and fire is now um, coming out. So um, as I said, I'm not an avid cook at the time, so I don't really know what to do. Um, fortunately, my dad and my uncle do. They turn off, immediately turn off the grill, uh, slide the pan to the side, and fire is just erupting out of this grill. So they put the fire out, and, you know, kind of all is, like, stable for the moment. Uh, so I thought of that this morning as I was preparing for our sermon um, because not just because Jesus is cooking uh, fish and bread uh, for the disciples on the beach, but because what we're dealing with here is the reality of failure. Uh, we are on the heels of Peter's denial of Jesus. Peter and the disciples have been walking with Jesus for three years now, and they have been tested time and time again in this decision to follow him, and they have watched and seen many different disciples fall away. But they have stayed true to Jesus and the course. We even remember uh, from two weeks ago when Jesus is telling the disciples, I must go to a place you can no longer follow. And Peter says, no, Lord, I must go with you, too. And Jesus says, I'm going to die. And Peter says, if you are going to die, I will go die with you. And Jesus' response is, no, in fact, you will deny me. You will deny me three times before the rooster crows. This is Peter's greatest fear. This is the thing that Peter would want least in his life. He has come to a point in time where he is face to face with the reality that he has failed the Lord. He has not stood up to the test and he has in fact not kept his word and been faithful. So today we will look at failure and the realities of it and how Jesus deals with it. But first, I want to start with this very important reality that with God, failure is not final. God has the last word. This is the resurrected Christ we're looking at here in John chapter 21. And he has just been through a life of faithfulness to God, his three years of ministry, and then followed that faithfulness to the cross where he suffered a horrible death. And God, in his love for Jesus, has not left him dead, but risen him from the dead. He has overcome sin and death. And now we see on the beach this morning a resurrected Christ who is here to tell Peter and all of us this morning that failure is not final. The reality and response of failure to God is to come and seek us out and to restore us to relationship with him. We see that in the scriptures this morning, and scholars debate whether the disciples have been faithful to God's call. We see in the book of Matthew where Jesus and the angels call the disciples to go to Galilee. They say, go to Galilee, and Jesus will meet you there. Jesus tells that himself. 
Some people think it's just their faithfulness. Some people think it's them not knowing what in the world has happened at the crucifixion and even seeing Jesus as the risen Christ and not knowing what to do. They return to their former life of just simply being fishermen. But this morning, while that is unclear, we know what is clear is that God seeks them out just like he seeks us out to restore us to relationship. And Jesus comes with provision of bread and food, and he comes with an invitation back to relationship. The restoration of God is an invitation for us to receive and respond. And like so many times before, we see this invitation to relationship initiated by God in the form of dialogue beginning with a question where Jesus asks Peter a question, inviting him back to this relationship. Young in my faith, growing up here in the church, I was exposed to this reality of God's grace and this call to restoration, a call to forgiveness and a gentle reminder that I had done things wrong. Scripture says that it is the kindness of God that welcomes us to repent us, repentance, that calls us back to himself. And I experienced that growing up as I discovered deeper and deeper the reality that God's love was so great for me and the reality that I was desperately in need for his love and restoration. But I had what many would call cheap grace, a discovery that I was broken and I was in need of God, but he was forgiving me for things in my past. And as I received that forgiveness, I began to learn more and more of the things that he called me to, how the way I had been living was wrong, and he had invited me to a new way. But with this cheap grace, I thought that this was all I needed, the forgiveness of the past. And now, armed with this awareness of what God was calling to, I could sustain this life on my own. But like many of us discover very quickly in life, failure comes right around the bend, and I need of that forgiveness and grace again. This feeling and this need for perfection brought shame and guilt and fear of doing things wrong. And I'm here to assure you and remind you this morning that God is not afraid of our failure. God is not even surprised by it. You may be like me where when you encounter failure or mistakes in your life, you're somewhat caught off guard or even shocked. I seem to expect that I will make many less mistakes than God expects of me. And even better news that God has taken care of these things that we have done. Remember, we are encountering a resurrected Christ on the beach this morning. Jesus, who has lived a faithful life, been to the cross, died and suffered for our sins, and God in his great love has raised him again. He has conquered sin and death for us so that we must not have to. He invites us to this relationship merely to receive and respond. The setting this morning seems to be like a literary writer's dream. With so much allusion to the past, Jesus seems to be tying back so many of the things in this disciple's life. First, the call narrative of where this all began. If you go to Luke 5, you will see almost an exact replica of the story we encounter this morning on the beach. Jesus shows up, enters into the boat, teaches the guys, and then tells them after a full night's fishing with no nothing caught to put the nets on the other side, and they pull in a big catch. They are amazed. They come in, and then Jesus says, You are now fishermen, and now I will call you and make you to be fishers of men. And then they drop everything and go follow him. 
We see a replica of this story this morning as Jesus encounters them again on the boat, a full night of fishing with no catch, and again an instruction from their Lord. And they remember, they see the reality of this this same call they received before, and they're brought back right back to the beginning. How often do we have this reality where when we fail, we feel like a total and complete failure? We have not just done one thing wrong, but we feel like we have done everything wrong. In that evening, cooking that full meal, I felt like I had just gone back to square one. I had burned the meal. I had burned the bread. I had even ruined the grill. There's this reality that when we start to encounter failure in our lives, it feels like an identity that we are a complete failure. I think one of the reasons Jesus approaches his disciples in this way is to remind them of the first time he called them and to remind them back to who they are and who he is for them. We see this again on the beach where Jesus is feeding them with the fish and the bread, likely a common meal that day. But I think it no coincidence that he has given this large multitude of fish and then feeding them with it, likely for them triggering in their mind the memory of him breaking the loaves and the fishes and feeding the multitudes. An early miracle in his ministry that helps them discover who God is, this divine being, this reality that Jesus is God incarnate. So he's revealing to them, he's revealing to them the reality of who he is. Many scholars even tie in this fire that Jesus has on the beach, tying into the fire that Jesus sat by and warmed his hands as he denied even knowing Jesus to the young woman. This reality that the scene is set for where Peter went to deny Jesus. And it's a similar scene to restore him again. And then clearly, as Marcia said to the children, the three questions by Jesus, do you love me? Mirroring the three times that Peter would deny Jesus. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Jesus getting to reiterate time and time again, Lord, you know that I love you. And how does Jesus respond? but invites him back to action with his life. In this restoration, God restores us and then invites us again to a life of faith. And how is this restoration done? It's done publicly. It's not private with Jesus putting his arm around Peter and walking him down the beach and quietly going over the things he did wrong and instructing him how not to do them again. No, Peter knows what he's done wrong and he feels the guilt and the shame of it. But Peter Peter is restored publicly by Jesus. Jesus invites the whole group up and says, Peter, do you love me? And the whole group gets to see it. Well, what is this reality? It's a reality that part of restoration is not just an individual thing between us and God, but it's a communal reality where the relationship is restored, not just between God and us, but between us and the rest of the group. If Peter goes off quietly with Jesus And the rest of the group doesn't know that Jesus is not holding a grudge. They don't know this interaction and this restoration, and they can't learn from it themselves. As David reminds us constantly, we are invited to a life in community with God through community. And restoration is no different. This restoration to Peter comes in a public way. We see this reality that God is coming to his disciples just as he comes to us on the heels of disaster and failure, of falling apart, of denying the very Lord that they had loved and knew and followed in his greatest time of need. I don't know, like many of you, but I can certainly identify with this type and level of failure and the feeling of guilt 
and fear. But with this restoration comes a much deeper knowledge of relationship. I'm learning to discover this reality with my wife. I remember our first disagreement, our big conflict, our first fight at a meaningful level when we were dating. And I remember the vulnerability that I felt in that relationship. I wasn't secure in our connection and I was afraid of what would happen. But as many of my mentors assure me, conflict is not necessarily a negative thing. It's how you respond and deal with it. And having open lines of communication and working through this conflict I was very pleasantly surprised to know that after our conflict, I felt much closer and much deeper in working through this problem in the ways that I had hurt my then girlfriend. We came much closer and we were restored to a much deeper relationship. I think this is one of the unexpected powers of the cross. The reality that a rift in relationship with God's love and grace and forgiveness can bring us even deeper and even closer creating a deeper knowledge of God's love for us and trust in him. This reality reminded me of a parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 7 as he dines at a, at a house of a Pharisee. He comes in and is not treated as most guests would be treated and their feet washed by a servant. But there is a woman who is known to have a sinful life, whom you may remember, pours perfume on Jesus' feet and then eventually is weeping over them and wiping the tears with her hair, cleaning his feet. When the Pharisees take note of this, Jesus responds with this parable. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so forgave the debts of both. Now which of them would love him more, Jesus asked. And the host replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then Jesus turned to the woman and said to his host, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. As her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven, little loves little. I know that I have messed up certainly many times like Peter, but I asked myself as I prepared for this morning, if I, like Peter, had received the restoration that he received from Jesus on the beach that day and knew a much deeper sense of God's love and God's grace. For those of y'all who are really concerned about my cooking abilities, I'll assure you that My dad and my uncle put the fire out, and some of the salmon, while a little undercooked, was still edible. And my dad scraped the burnt parts off the bread, and it was still edible. It was a learning point for me, but as I reflect on that moment, I know I have a greater understanding at the depth of the limits to our indoor grill and how to use it and how not to use it. And I don't have a fear of pushing that boundary because I know where it is, where the line is drawn. I have accidentally crossed it and I have been gracefully forgiven. I think there exists for us a similar reality with God. It surprises me that time and time again, I am more shocked by my failures than God is. He seems to be okay with this reality, not that he loves it by any means, As the Apostle Paul reminds us, shall we go on sinning so that grace shall increase all the more? 
By no means, he says. But there is a reality of the depth of God's grace and the power of his forgiveness that I think we only experience in times where we have broken relationship with God and messed up just like Peter did in denying Jesus. It is in being restored that we learn the depth of what God has gone through to bring us back to relationship with him. On the heels of the celebration of God's power, of God's love, of God's overcoming grace through Easter, of overcoming sin and death, I find it so appropriate that we take the time to, with grace and with love, examine the reality that we are broken and in need of his grace, but it is lavishly poured out and available to all. In fact, God approaches us regularly to invite us into that restorative relationship. And it is being restored that we are forgiven greatly and can turn and love others with that great love. I invite you with courage and boldness and confidence, not in ourselves, but in the love of God, to not look upon your failures in fear but to know and expect that God will be right around the corner, inviting you back to relationship, a deeper relationship through restoration. Amen.